holy God, you are eternal and unchanging. You are sovereign, holy, and simple. You are a steady rock on which our entire universe finds itself held together. The world spins on its axis. The galaxy is beyond our reach, and the universe is infinite. And all of these things pale in comparison to you. All of these are held together by you. And in the entire, in you, the entire universe finds its beginning and can discern its end, and its purpose is defined. Through you, our lives have meaning. There's nothing that is hidden from you. Lord, we confess that we do not give you a big enough place in our lives. We have not built our lives on the foundation that is you. We believe that we are far too strong without you to even realize that we desperately need you. Lord, we pray that we would recognize our frailty. Give us humility to see just how much we, desire, we ought to desire and call upon you. That no matter what we face in our lives, whether it's the threat of illness, death, wars, or just the normal hard routines of this life, that we would build our hope and our faith on you the rock of our salvation. We thank you, Lord, for not leaving us alone. Even when our faith is small, we thank you for hearing our prayers and the cry of our heart. And this morning, we thank you for other like-minded, gospel-preaching churches here in the Pacific Northwest. We thank you, Lord, for Trevor Binkley and for Bethany Baptist Church in Beaverton. Lord, we thank you that you have placed them in, in a unique place. They're on the west side of Portland. We pray that that they are able to faithfully preach the gospel and proclaim your word. Lord, give the elders wisdom as they lead their church in growing discipleship and care for the members of that body. Lord, this morning we also pray for ourselves. We pray for those in this church who are continue to struggle with illness. Lord, may you give them a faith in, in yourself and in you a trust, and even in their sickness, Lord, may they re be reminded uh, of your found, the foundation that you have in their life. Lord, we also pray for the word. As Hans brings the word to us this morning, we pray that it would plant seeds of faith in our lives that would bear fruit in the years to come. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nick. You can have a seat and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. I do not read a lot of fiction books, not because I don't like them, but just because I don't really have a ton of time to do so. Most of the time, if you find me reading, uh, it will be in a theological, sociological, counseling, or history book. In other words, I really know how to party. <laughs> but when I find time to eat some brain candy, something that's all sugar and no meat, so to speak, you'll probably find me reading a mystery novel. I love mystery novels. I love the slow but sure revealing that occurs as the book moves from the obscure to the obvious. I especially love the Agatha Christie novels involving the character Hercule Poirot. I know I mispronounced that, but that's okay. He seems for most of the novel to be bumbling around, but then at the final scene, he gathers together all the people involved and he spiritedly walks them through his logic so that the killer emerges in dramatic fashion. What was hidden has now been made plain for the reader to see. 
And there's something very satisfying about that. Imagine, though, that you're reading a mystery novel and it gets to the scene where everyone is gathered with bated breath to have that which is hidden revealed. And everyone says, you know what? I'd rather not know. And then the scene ends. I don't know about you, but if I were reading that book, I'd probably slam it shut in frustration and find a new book. What is a mystery if it's not something that eventually will be revealed? Even national secrets and mysteries, such as who shot JFK or what happened at Roswell, even these have people investigating since their occurrence to find out what happened because mysteries need to be revealed. A mystery is something hidden that needs to be shown. And this is the connotation of the Greek word from which we get the word mystery. In Greek, it's mysterion, and it means something hidden that has been revealed. But the English word carries the connotation of a secret which people have tried to uncover, but which they have failed to understand or reveal. Very different meanings. Now, when applied to the realm of spirituality or religion, you will quickly find that many actually prefer the English version of mystery. Many prefer to exist in the unknown or in the hidden. This is where the idea of the mystic comes from. A mystic is a person who hopes to grasp onto truths that are beyond the intellect, as if by otherworldly absorption into the divine. It's an activity that occurs aside from the mind and the consciousness. It's almost as if an emptying of the consciousness will bring about uh, oneness with the divine. You can think of Eastern meditation, for example. Now, in the day of Paul and the Colossians, the church was surrounded by mystical ideas, mystical religions. And it was this mysticism that seemed to be infiltrating the church, or at least on the borders of it. This odd combination of Jewish mysticism, folk religion, and the beginnings of Gnostic thought all shared a common strain. They revealed a mystery, sorry, they reveled in a mystery that only the initiated, only the most spiritual, and only the special could obtain. And even then, there was very little clarity about who God is or what he wanted. You might say, well, it's a good thing we don't have to worry about that anymore, mysticism. But unfortunately, it's everywhere in contemporary Christian Christianity. It's everywhere. It's found most heavily in the charismatic and Pentecostal traditions, where only the spiritually initiated speak in tongues. Only the spiritually initiated have words of knowledge. Only the spiritually initiated have visions. And it's a self-imposed hierarchy that's organically produced where those who have uncovered the mystery through these spiritual moments are at the top, and those who are still in the dark, well, they're at the bottom. And interestingly enough, many of these spiritual experiences do little to reveal anything. Those who speak in tongues don't know what they're saying, unless there's an interpretation, interpretation, which there rarely is. Those who have visions don't definitively know what they mean, but they feel special for having them. Those with words of knowledge often don't care if it connects with the reality of the person they're speaking to. They just want them to know that they heard from God. And this is a hallmark of mystical religion. The fun is staying in the unknown rather than having clarity. In fact, what it looks like is people who uh, notoriously are known for going on first dates because the mystery of the first date is better than stepping into a long-term monogamy. A close second in contemporary Christianity are the churches attempting to embrace the new monasticism, where a false asceticism is ascribed to some who seem especially monk-like. There's a focus on pilgrimages and meditation and old Catholic mystical practices. There's also the new apostolic reformation, whose poster child church, Bethel, focuses on healings, mystical experiences in prayer, and worship experiences that have little basis in scripture. 
All of these friends get their basis in ancient pagan mysticism, such as the oracles of Greek religion, who could speak in ecstatic utterances and supposedly tell the future. Again, getting a hyper-spiritual feeling from sitting in the mystical rather than focusing on the revelation God has clearly provided. Now, why would we be drawn to this as humans? Why is it still so rampant, even in Christendom? Well, perhaps we like the mystical because it leaves us in the driver's seat. It allows us the position of lordship. Perhaps it's because humans are driven more by emotional experience than by clear and defined wisdom. Perhaps because it really requires nothing of us in terms of obedience. Perhaps it's because it makes us feel special and like we are in the in-crowd with God. Regardless, the form has changed, but the obsession with the mysterious still sits very much alive in today's Christendom. And the same sense of wonder with the mystical was what could creep into the local church at Colossae. And Paul's letter is trying to act as a vaccination, if you will, against that possibility. And we will see this become more and more clear in the next couple of weeks as we continue in this letter. But this morning, we come to a section that's a bit of a transition in Paul's thought. It's a hinge between the Christology we've been given, that Christ is supreme as king, and how we should then live as a result. As we saw two weeks ago, Paul outlined the supremacy of Christ as the focus of the gospel and the focus of the church. And then last week, we saw that Paul had been called to be a servant, a minister of the truth of Christ's supremacy for the sake of building up the church. And Paul has noted his struggle, his fight, was to keep this revealed mystery of Christ at the center of the focus of the church. And that's our fight today as well, in the midst of a world that wants to allow us to exist in the unclear rather than the clear, in the mysterious rather than the revealed. And so today we're going to look at the same fight that Paul had, the fight to stay focused and founded upon Christ. The fight to stay founded upon Christ. Now, to be clear, there is still some mystery, right? If you're a person who says, Trinity, I got it. Let me tell you about it, right? I wonder, I wonder if you actually have it, right? We may never fully understand the Trinity this side of heaven. There is some mystery. But what's interesting is what you focus on and what your primary call to is. And what Paul was fighting against is very much the same thing we're fighting against today. We're leaving aside the revealed and the obvious to go and pursue things that are less clear. And Paul was trying to get the church to recognize that's not what God is calling us to. And so we're going to unpack these ideas a bit further this morning as Paul also begins to tell us his concern for the local church at Colossae. And friends, this is a much-needed message for today. It may not be the same form of mysticism, but there still is an ever-present doubt that hovers over today's church, wondering, is there something more that we are missing? Isn't there something more we should be doing to correct the brokenness of our society? Isn't there something more than Christ died, Christ resurrected, Christ enthroned, and Christ lording over the church? Isn't there something more? You know it. You've felt it. You've heard other people state it. There's a general discontentment that hangs over contemporary Christianity that seeks the spiritually novel rather than the revealed truth that we have right in our hands. And as we will see, this is a symptom of the original sin that has been passed down to us from our first parents and one that we must fight now as Paul fought then. So let's look at our text this morning and see what the inspired word of God has for us, shall we? Take a look at Colossians 2, 1 through 7. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, 
to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we notice here is Paul's fight to stay founded upon the revelation of Christ. Paul's fight to stay founded upon the revelation of Christ. And we see this in verses 1 through 3. Let me read it one more time. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, prior to this, in verses 24 through 29 of chapter 1, we have our contextual background for this text. Let's go ahead and read that. Would you read it with me, if you will? Uh, Starting in verse 24, uh, what Nick uh, shared with us last week. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Paul first introduced us to both the mystery and his struggle in this section. His struggle, as outlined in verse 29, is to present everyone mature in Christ. And to do so, he must continue proclaiming the revealing of the mystery that has occurred because of the gospel. That Christ has risen from the dead as supreme authority over the cosmos. And he has poured out his spirit into the collective group of his people known as the church. This is revealed. This is known. And as we learned last week, this struggle is not just to be his alone or just the elders alone or just the pastor alone. It's to be a struggle that all of us engage in as servants of the Most High King. Now, the Greek word for struggle here and in our text is the base from which we get the word agonize. Paul's work was agonizing. And anyone who's been in full-time ministry or even uh, put a lot of work into lay ministry knows that ministry is agonizing. And the connotation specifically in our text is that it is a military or athletic word as well. There's agony in the contest, in the conflict, if you will. There's a certain level of this contest or fight or conflict that Paul has signed up for and that each of us is given into when we are converted and redeemed by the Spirit of God. It is the largest irony to me Uh, when I meet people who've jumped into Christianity because they want life to be easier. (laughs) Anybody else chuckle at that one, (laughs) right? Um, That's not what walking with Christ brings. In fact, it brings a lot of pain and trial and suffering like Paul talks about at the beginning there. And so with our text this morning, starting in chapter 2, Paul is reminding them and asking them to grasp the fact that the fight is performed on their behalf. It's for them, and we fight not just for fighting's sake, but we fight for one another. And he says that he struggles and he fights and he agonizes, not just for agony's sake, but for them, so that they particularly might be mature in Christ. And not only for them, but the surrounding churches, like the local church at Laodicea, which was only about 10 miles away from Colossae. 
And even beyond that, Paul's fight is for any and all Christians, even those like us, who have never seen him face to face, never seen his face in the flesh. What Paul is striving and fighting to do is to present Christians as mature before Christ. He mentions three things that evidence the maturity he referenced in last week's section. First, he notes there in verse 2 that their hearts may be encouraged. Now, these hearts are not emotional hearts as we think of in English. Hearts were the seat of all wisdom and knowledge and being. And so their whole being would be encouraged is what he's looking for. Hearts that are given courage for the fight that we will find ourselves in. You see, if we're to engage in the same agonizing conflict that Paul was engaging in to present one another as mature, we are going to face difficulties and trials and setbacks and an adversary who wants nothing more than to destroy us, and he does not take a day off. And so what do we need? We need courage every day to stay firm in our resolve to fight. And second, he notes a present unity based on love, not only that their hearts may be encouraged, but being knit together in love. Hearts knit together, united in love. He wants to see the opposite of what the rumors from Epaphras are implying, that there is division among the people, and some being pulled away from the simplicity of the gospel into mystical notions. Instead, he wants a mature church full of mature believers, which should be a group of people so focused on the message of the gospel that unity and reconciliation and repentance and forgiveness are what mark this church of Colossae and what should mark every local church. And third, Paul notes that his fight for the people is to help them reach the fullness of wisdom and understanding of the mystery of God, which is Christ. But notice the syntax of this sentence. It's as though Paul is saying that the understanding of the mystery of God is what will lead to this encouragement and unity of hearts and love, as well as overall wisdom. In other words, the more you learn about Jesus, the more you focus on his gospel, the more it saturates your every being, the closer you are to knowing the fullness of the divine and the fullness of the eternal. You need nothing else. And that alone will drive us to unity. That alone will encourage us. What more encouragement is there to know that our Savior has died for our sins. He's forgiven us of our sins. He's resurrected in victory over sin, death, and hell, and he sits enthroned waiting to come back to establish his kingdom. What more courage could we need? And what more unity is there in that fact that one day we will all stand at his throne together? So let's pause for a moment and think about this idea of this mystery that he's talking about, this mystery that's been revealed. Let's go into some more depth on what is meant by this and why its revelation is Christ and why this even matters. Because he says, if we focus on this, if we know this, if we look to this, this mystery that's been revealed, these things will naturally come. Amen? Well, when you look up the word mystery in the Bible, you'll see that it's used 24 times in the New Testament. 20 of those are by Paul. The other four are in Revelation. And he loved this idea of a mystery having been revealed in Christ. He uses it in most of his letters. But if you look the same word up in the Old Testament, interestingly, especially in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint, you find that it's found, mystery is found, only in one book. One book. And that's Daniel. And specifically, eight of the nine times in Daniel that it's used are in Daniel chapter 2. Would you go there with me to Daniel chapter 2? Daniel 2. 
If you recall the context, you can even look at the header of the section. This is the scene where the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, had a disturbing dream. And he called for all the wise men and mystics and prophets of his kingdom to come and interpret it. But to check their ability to truly discern the mystical, he first refuses to tell them the dream, and they have to come up with it themselves. Pretty bum deal, right? I, I wouldn't want that job. Well, when they fail and they tell the king, hey, you're nuts, we can't do this, what are you talking about? They are all dismissed and unfortunately destroyed is the word that's used. They're killed. But Daniel responds with prudence and wisdom. (coughs) Excuse me. Daniel responds with prudence and wisdom and asks to see the king. And he and his companions then pray. They pray to God for mercy. And as a result... Daniel is given the revelation of the dream and its interpretation in a vision from God. And Daniel responds with this prayer of praise that we heard earlier. Look at Daniel 2, 20 through 23. That was read earlier. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And notice this character trait here. Look at this, verse 22. He reveals, it doesn't say hides. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. You see, friends, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who came incarnate as Jesus Christ, is a God of light, not a God of darkness. He's a God of revelation, not a God of mystery. He's a God of clarity, not of concealment. He's a God of order, not chaos. He's a God of truth, not deception. And he's a God of certainty, not confusion. Let that sink in for a minute. Everything in his plan of salvation is to reveal, to bring forth, to let truth reign. And you see Paul pointing this out to the church that easily gets pulled back into the opposite over and over again. You see this with Colossians, but you also see it in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 14.33, he reminds them in the midst of the section that's often used to back chaos in the church, he's actually telling them the opposite. He says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. I remember one of the first churches that Kelly and I visited when we were new in the faith. (laughs) She might, oh, she's not in in here right now, but uh, man, we walked in and sat down and they started worship music and all of a sudden the worship pastor gets up and he says, ah, we're gonna worship the Lord now. He thought, oh, great, this is gonna be good. And he says, everybody sing to God a song in your own words. So we had people over here singing in tongues, no interpretation. We had people over here singing This Little Light of Mine. Uh, Literally every person on the stage was playing an instrument, different keys, some of them purposefully off-key. It was complete and utter chaos and confusion, not to to mention it sounded horrible, (laughs) right? And there are people swaying and being so excited and all this stuff. And the whole time, right, I had just started a little bit of Bible study and I was actually in 1 Corinthians. The whole time I was thinking of this verse going, I thought God was a God of confusion, 
not confusion, but of peace. But he's a God of confusion here. And it dawned on me, they're worshiping a different God. They're worshiping a different God. They're worshiping a God of confusion. Now you might say, oh Hans, that sounds harsh. How, how can you judge that church? I can judge them by the fruits. It was a confusing situation. It brought no clarity, no worship. You see, friends, the very character of the God of the Bible is to be a revealer of mysteries, not to leave things concealed. Take a look at Daniel 2.28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. The creator God did not need to reveal himself to Adam and Eve, to any humanity, but he did. He did not need to communicate his will to them, but he did. And after mankind tried to remove him and usurp his throne, he again came forward, breaking through the dark curtain of idolatry to reveal himself to Abraham. You see, every time we try and conceal God, this is what Romans 1 says, we try and let the lie reign over the truth and conceal him, and he, because of his long-suffering, his steadfast love, his grace, his mercy, he breaks through our concealment to reveal himself. What a good God. And through his people, he revealed his will and truth through his word. And all of this was pointing to the full revelation that would come in Jesus Christ. And it was only a mystery that was uh, concealed because mankind was concealing it. But all the while, his salvific timeline was moving towards revelation, moving towards revealing his full character. Character. All of this was pointing to the full revelation that would come in Jesus Christ the one made supreme among all creation. In Christ, the fullness of God's character was and is revealed. In Christ, the fullness of his authority is placed. In Christ, the fullness of God's steadfast love and enduring kindness is shown. We don't need to keep looking. It's kind of like if, you know, I went on a date with, with Kelly Potter and, and I was staring at her and looking at her and, and I knew that she was to be my wife, but I kept looking anyway. That'd be pretty dumb, right? I found her. What I should do is focus on her and sit with her and learn about her and know her and get to the deepest mysteries of her as opposed to going and trying to find somebody else. The same things happen with Jesus. He's revealed himself. He's sitting right in front of us in his word and his people. And yet we spend time searching out something else, as if we haven't already been giving it, given everything we need. And this is why we have a book that we just went through recently that's named Revelation, not because it hides some mysterious Bible code for the future, but because it points us back time and time again to the mystery that's already been revealed to us. It's called the Revelation, right? Not the hidden, not the code, Right? What's been revealed to us time and time again in this book that we hold in our hands? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ reigns over his church, and Christ will come again. And notice that this was even the very mystery that was being uncovered in Daniel 2. The dream itself was of a statue that signified the strong worldly kingdoms of the ancient world. And the interpretation was that in the day of the weakening and brittle Roman Empire, a rock would destroy the kingdoms of the world and grow into a mountain that fills the whole earth. Uh, Daniel 2, 44 through 45, take a look at that. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms, 
and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. The kingdom symbolized by the mountain is the kingdom that began with the enthronement of Christ as the Lord of the cosmos. And interestingly enough, when was that kingdom established? When did he die? When did he resurrect? When was he enthroned? During the brittle Roman Empire. It was falling apart. And so the mystery of Daniel 2 is fulfilled in Jesus. There need be no waiting or mystery any longer, no trying to decipher the codes of the future. Jesus is the rock, and the mountain that is growing is the building of his church throughout the Gentile world. All we're waiting for is his return. In shorthand, Paul is using this idea of mystery back in Colossians to remind the church that the very thing mankind constantly searches for through mystical religious ideas and practices has already been found. It's already been revealed. And there's nothing more that needs to be revealed. Christ has come. Christ has been revealed. His spirit has been poured into the church. And now it is plainly obvious what he requires. Like Paul, we all need to declare with our obedience to his reign within the people of God that he is Savior and King. And we need to call all mankind to submit to this revealed mystery. The world does not need to keep searching in the darkness, for in Christ alone is found all they need to know about the divine and the eternal, and it is our job to bring that to them. Rather than get sucked into the Jewish folk or Gnostic mysticism that was creeping into the church at Colossae, Paul was calling them to stay firmly planted on what they knew to be true, that Christ reigns, that his spirit has empowered them, and they were now called, just as we are, to evidence the kingdom in our love for God and our love for one another. And how do we love God? Well, Christ made that really clear, didn't he? John 14, 15, if you love me, what does it say? You will keep my commandments. I love years ago, uh, I think it was Francis Chan who was at a conference, and this wasn't his exact topic, but he gave this, this uh, image. He said, you know, it's, it's kind of like I go to my daughter, I say to my daughter, I love you, I'm here, I want to give you my word, and my word is this, go clean your room. And, and she says, okay, great, and she comes back a couple hours later, and Francis does a much better job than I'm going to do, but she comes back a couple hours later, and she says, Dad, you know, I prayed about what you said. I really contemplated it, meditated over it. I invited a ton of people over and we meditated together, sought your will, and it was just wonderful. I hope you feel loved by that. And he looks at her and says, did you clean your room? And she says, no, why would I do that? Right? That's like what the church does, right? We've been given the revealed will of God, love God, love one another, know that Christ is king. And we spend all this time doing other things rather than simply praying that God would engage us in that, would give us empowerment to obey, looking to his word, knowing his word, following his word. Folks, do you ever find yourself wondering what God wants from you, what his purpose is for your life, what he desires for you to do in a given situation? Do you find yourself being pulled off into spiritual conspiracy theories or novel theological ideas? Do you find yourself staring at the newspaper trying to decode when the secret rapture will happen? Do you find yourself confused about what the Holy Spirit is for and what he accomplishes in the church? Well, friends, the answer to all of this confusion and much more is clear in the gospel and in Christ. Christ died for our sins. You've been forgiven. Christ rose, conquering the kingdom of which we were once a part. 
And Christ reigns now over his church. It's that simple. You and I have been drawn into that church by his sovereign grace. And we can now spend our days learning his rule and commands and living them out in the love of God and the love of one another. It's not complicated. We make it complicated, but it's simple. But like Paul, it's something that we will be struggling to carry out because our own sinful hearts and the adversary we fight constantly want us, wants us to be drawn away from the light and back into the dark. Rather than trying to figure out that which seems mysterious to us, Paul is calling the church to focus on what we know to be true. The simplicity of the gospel found in Christ. And this is what Paul next encourages and exhorts them in. Next, we see Paul's warning to and encouragement in the local church. Verses 4 and 5 back in Colossians 2. Now, if it's so very clear, and God is the God of the revealed truth, not of mystery, why do so many of us fall prey to losing our focus to something else? Why do so many self-proclaimed Christians start out faithful to Christ and the church, only to then wander into becoming searchers who focus more on novel spiritual or religious ideas than they do on the gospel? Well, friends, this is not new to mankind, and I, I just want to talk about the elephant in the room. I know, because I know many of your stories, that many of you first engaged Christ in a almost mysterious or an emotional or a spiritual moment. And what you might be hearing from me right now is you need to deny that. You need to remove that. That doesn't count. That's not good, right? That's not at all what I'm saying. The Lord may have visited you in that moment, absolutely. But here's the deal. You've now been given the revealed truth. Why do you keep wanting to go back to that feeling, that emotion, and that's where we get stuck, is what I find with Christians is that if we're based upon emotion to begin, then the ending will be our emotion as well. If the feeling we had when we started Christianity is what we need in order to endure, then none of us will endure because that feeling will go away. And so the basis and foundation of our Christianity needs to be Christ, who never changes, and the fact that he's revealed his will to us, which never changes. And in that way, the ebbs and flows of our emotions, they won't twist and turn us like they so often do. Because this is what mankind does. We've been doing it since the beginning. There's been a tendency from the very beginning to not stand firmly founded upon God, but to let ourselves reign. And so let's refresh what we know from the very beginning of the Bible. God is light and clarity and order and revelation and truth. We know that from Genesis 1. But let me ask you, and get ready to respond here. Who is darkness and confusion, chaos and deception? The adversary of God, Hasatan. The one who Christ called the father of all lies. He was a liar from the beginning and it's core to his character. And what was it that he did all the way back in Genesis 3 that he repeats each and every day of our lives as the accuser of God, the accuser of man, the accuser of the church and the deceiver? Well, he takes the very clear, clear truth of God and twists it through deceptive argumentation and gets us all turned around thinking that our emotions or opinions or truth 
And he sows deception that causes us to dismiss or second-guess God's truth. And this is what Paul was trying to get them to stay away from back in Colossians 2. If you haven't turned back there with me, go ahead and turn there now. He says in verse 4, he focuses upon Christ. He tells them about the struggle. He tells them that in Christ is found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he says, verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude, or your translation may also have deceive delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He says, I don't want you to be deceived. Now think about Genesis 3. It's funny, isn't it? God couldn't have been any more clear. Adam, Eve, you have thousands of trees to eat from. In fact, you have all of them, (laughs) but one. And to make really clear what will happen if you eat that one, you're going to die. So don't do that one thing. Adam and Eve, you have one job, (laughs) right? Now, along comes the serpent, the accuser, the deceiver. Did God actually mean what he said? Oh, man, that one is still out there, isn't it? Well, I know that God said that marriage is between one man and one woman, but did, did God really mean what he said? I know that God said that you should only have sex in marriage, but did God really mean what he said? I know that you should love your wife, husbands, but did God really mean that, especially when she's being mean to you? Wives, I know you're supposed to respect your husbands, but did God really mean that? I mean, if your husband's not the greatest guy, what should you do, right? It's still out there. He's still deceiving with that. He couldn't have meant what he said, right? Well, then we see Genesis 3, 5. He says, you won't surely die. And then he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the the subtext there is God doesn't want you to do that. He's in competition with you. He's unfair. He's not good. He doesn't want the best for you. It's a plausible argument, don't you think? One sentence. It seems reasonable. But what is this in sight? What is this adversary and his lie in sight? Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Guys, what just happened there? That plausible argument from the deceiver incited Eve to trust in her own opinions, her own feelings, her own knowledge more than God. To trust her gut feelings more than the clear revealed word of God. And this is what Satan is doing all the time within our lives and within the church. We find ourselves confused and in chaos rather than resolved and in order because we trust ourselves more than we trust the word of God. And so back in our text this morning in Colossians, Paul is saying, pay attention to what has been made clear and what has been revealed. All wisdom is found in Christ and his word. Stop falling prey to anything outside of that which convinces you that something is missing Something else must be truth. Friends, the deceiver works through any means possible where he can distract us from the gospel and its application in our lives. Friends, I don't know one person who self-identifies as a Christian that doesn't want to know the truth of God. Amen? Amen. Every single one of you in here, you're here on a Sunday when you could be out doing something else because you want what? You want to know the truth of God. Well, what if I told you that you have literally been given the truth of God and as much as you take from it is what you're going to get? We've been given it. 
We don't need anything else. And so our lives should be devoted to understanding and applying this, amen? Amen. We don't need anything else. We don't need any other religious tools. We have what we need. And so within the church, it couldn't be made more clear. We need to focus and major on what has been made clear. In our behavior, the word of God is clear. What does Christ require of you? Often we get lost in religious pursuits when God is simply asking us to obey, and to obey, we need to read God's word and follow it. In our relationships, the word of God is clear. What is Christ requiring of you there? Are you refusing to repent when the gospel demands otherwise? Are you withholding forgiveness when the gospel demands otherwise? Are you refusing reconciliation and instead withdrawing when the gospel demands otherwise? Are you justifying yourself when the word of God is clear that only the blood of Christ justifies us? If we waited for our feelings to match the commands of Christ, none of us would ever follow his lordship. Let me say that again. If we waited for our feelings to match the commands of Christ, none of us would ever follow his lordship. But what is the church if it is not those who have been called to be a gathering of citizens submitted to the lordship of Christ in their behavior, their words, their actions, and their relationships? Friends, what would happen to the spiritual growth and sanctification and joy of this church if we all just agreed that we will not move on to anything else until we all become veterans at knowing, understanding, and employing the gospel in every aspect of our lives? Until then, we should all be looking to the salvation and lordship of Christ as that which deserves our utmost attention. Don't be deceived by plausible arguments that have their root in the deceiver. Stay firmly founded on Christ and his revealed truth. Now, as any good leader, coach, parent, or pastor does, Paul cautions them, but then gives them encouragement in the direction he wants them to go. He doesn't leave it at just the warning, but he says, guys, this is my warning, but I'm also encouraged in the trend I see. Even though there is this mysticism about to creep into Colossae, as he noted at the beginning of the letter, he also has heard great things about this church. And so Paul commends them for their good order and firmness in the faith. Notice it again in verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. They are firm in their faith in Christ and not automatically wavering into mysticism. They are operating in order and not chaos. And for order, there needs to be something that draws their hearts into unity and a common goal. Both of these phrases actually have military connotations in them of people in a formation walking in line behind their general. And this is what the gospel and the lifting up of Christ as supreme do within the church. When we all have a focus upon Christ as supreme and the gospel, we all get drawn together towards him and we find ourselves unified and we find ourselves encouraged and we find ourselves seeing all of the wisdom of Christ. Again, imagine what this would do to the sanctification of this local church if we all focused on living in a way where our actions and how we operated in relationships were defined by Christ as king. And we lived in a way that illustrated that repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation as defined by the gospel, is what flows out of us. Imagine how it would change our interactions, our marriages, our friendships, and our parenting. You know, so often in counseling, I'll be sitting there with whoever I'm counseling, whether it's marriage counseling or an individual, and we'll be going round and round and around talking about feelings, and then it's amazing how the clouds part and the seas part when I simply get back to the core and I say, what is Jesus requiring of you in this moment? It's amazing how much conflict in marriage goes away. It's amazing how much it becomes obvious what you're supposed to do if you're seeking counsel. What does Jesus require of you in this moment? I think the Spirit of God is telling you 
People know. The gospel and the lordship of Christ becomes our measuring rod in these situations, our measuring rod for success and fruitfulness, and nothing else does. Not our feelings, not our emotions, not our worldviews. Friends, where might you be letting something else other than Christ and his commands define wisdom and knowledge and truth for you? There's a great Gospel Coalition article this week about the new stoicism that's sweeping through our culture right now and how it's found especially in men looking for truth about what it is to be a man because our society has so disregarded this idea, and I agree with that. And so voices like Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson and others have become sources for truth. Now, hear me, please. We can find wisdom in many places, and so if you listen to those men, I'm not saying stop listening to them, right? Uh, even in some of these people. But I wonder how many of us, myself included, are reflections primarily of these sources of truth rather than primarily of God's Word and the Gospel. And you can fill in the blank with whatever podcast or articles you listen to or read. What does it look like to reflect the Gospel? What does it look like for this to be the core of our wisdom? It means that when we're about to take an action, we're doing so based on the fact that Christ is King, that he's given us principal commands that affect all of life, and he's empowered us to obey them, obey them through the Holy Spirit based on the Word and in the midst of the help of the church. And it means that we're doing so based on the fact that he will come to judge us based on our obedience to those commands. It means that when we're about to speak, we remember that Christ has commanded that our words be truthful and edifying and used for building up rather than tearing down. It means that in our relationships, we enter into them with a heart to serve the other rather than ourselves. And it means that when we have conflict, which will always arise in any close relationship, we are quick to hear, quick to repent, quick to forgive, and quick to reconcile. Friends, these are things I need to be reminded of. Do you? And these things are all based not on our feelings or opinions or debates we have within ourselves or with our confidants, but they're based on the fact that Christ is king and he has modeled for us what he expects of us through the cross. Amen. Friends, let's become proficient in asking two questions that help us stay fixed on the gospel anytime we are counseling one another in this church. Two questions. That's all I want you to memorize. Can you do that? When we're giving counsel to one another in this church, I want us to memorize two questions. What does your king require of you? And what, re what would reflect the gospel in this situation? I can't even imagine the sanctification that's going to occur in this church if we focus on these two questions. So when we come to each other and we bring forward what's going on in our lives, hear each other's venting, hear each other's emotion, hug each other, do all those good things, but come back to these questions. What does your king require of you? And what would reflect the gospel in this situation? Amazing, just even reading those, how clear it becomes, right? How much the clouds part, how much the water parts. All of a sudden, it's no longer about the people we're pointing fingers at because we like to defend or blame. All of a sudden, it's, wow, I have a responsibility to obey my king. What does he require of me? This has become so helpful for me. Definitely have a lot of room to grow in actually applying it, but at least it's brought clarity, amen? These two simple questions will give us the ammunition we need to keep waging good warfare and to stay strong in the struggle Paul is calling us to emulate. All of chapter 1 into chapter 2 has been talking about Christ in a supreme authority position as king and focusing on the gospel. And now what he's going to roll into is, let's talk about how that applies. And the first thing he's going to do is give great warning that we're going to cover next week on fighting back against some of these things that are deceptive. This focus on the gospel, Paul says, will build the church. 
And this is what he says next in our last little section here, verses 6 through 7. We see Paul's exhortation to keep building through the gospel. Take a look there. He says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He begins with a hefty, therefore, because of all this, he's saying, because you have received the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord of all, supreme in authority over his church, walk in this truth. Live your life with this truth as the foundation. This is what you were taught, and this is what you need to stay focused on. Friends, these verses actually are the heart of Colossians. And they speak for themselves, and so I don't even really need to go into them in great depth. I will a little bit, but this is the heart of Colossians. Because of all of this before, because of the fact that you have received the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord of all, supreme in authority over his church, then walk in this truth. Live your life with this truth as the foundation. And this is what you were taught, and this is what you need to stay focused on. They have been given the orthodoxy, the theology, the Christology of Christ's place as supreme authority. And now Paul is transitioning into what looks like how it's to be applied. Paul uses two metaphors here to reinforce this idea. The first is that they need to stay rooted in this. Here he is calling on the picture used throughout Scripture of a fruitful tree. If the roots are in good soil, it will grow strong, stand firm when hit by storms or winds, and will provide nutrients to the fruit that it produces. Now, a few weeks ago, we discussed this idea of fruit in chapter 1. The fruit of our lives will speak to what we're rooted in. If we have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control, then we can be assured we are in the soil of the gospel. But if our fruits are something else, we need to look seriously at what we have rooted ourselves within. It might be tradition. It might be an emotional experience or a false view that Christianity brings self-help and success. It might be your familial lineage of Christianity. It might be social connections. It might be vain religious traditions. It might be politics. But friends, whatever it is, it's not the gospel. We need to ask ourselves, what is the root of our Christianity? Is our root the Holy Spirit calling us into the people of God so that we can no longer refuse the fact that Christ has saved us and that Christ is now our Lord and King? If not, we need to cry out to God, Lord, help my unbelief. Save me so that my Christianity is no longer about me or my family or my politics or anything else, but it's all about Christ as Lord. We need to cry out for that. And secondly, he uses not only the metaphor of the tree and the fruit, but of being built up in him, established as a building. And this image is of the church as a temple with each of us as hewn stones adding to its structure, Jesus being the chief cornerstone. If we're walking in the gospel, we will find ourselves building up the church, being encouraged by the church, adding to the church. But if we're not walking in the gospel, we will find ourselves tearing it down, being accusers of the brethren and finding fault in the church. Only walking in the clear gospel we have been taught will build us up, uh, will build up the church in love, knitting our hearts together with God and each other. Only walking in the clear gospel we have been taught will grow us to be fruitful trees in the midst of the more perfect Eden with Christ's presence dwelling amongst us. Only the gospel will provide lasting growth in your life and in the church. In the 1970s, the theory was proclaimed that the church needed to break free from tradition and embrace the counterculture of the hippies to grow. In the 1980s and 90s, the theory was proclaimed that the church needed business acumen and practical organizational strategy to reach the seekers, to grow. 
In the 2000s, a new form of mysticism emerged known as the emergent church. And a conglomeration of practicality and mysticism and skepticism characterized the church. And this was supposed to make it grow. And now, post-pandemic and social upheaval, there is a general sense that the church simply will not grow, that it is dead. There's yet another article this morning I read, and I won't say who the author was, but three ways the church needs to grow. Engage justice. Make sure your communication is clear to the seekers. And I just sat there and read it, and I thought to myself, I really wish this person had read Colossians. Because the reality is, folks, the only thing that's going to make the church grow is the preaching and acting out of the gospel. Friends, throughout all these decades, the answer was and is just as clear. We've been handed the revelation of Jesus Christ, a tradition and creed that has been clearly taught and protected for 2,000 years. It proclaims that Jesus died as the substitute for our sin, that he rose from the grave proving his power, authority, and supreme lordship. And he now reigns from heaven over his people through the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And because of this, he calls us to obedience in the midst of his word, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead and establish his eternal reign once and for all. This gospel is what will grow the church. This gospel is what will mature the church. This gospel and this gospel alone is what will unite us and encourage us and assure us and give us all wisdom and knowledge needed for godliness and righteousness. And so this, friends, is what we are to focus on, Christ and his gospel. Amen? Amen. We have all that we need. There is no further mystery to search out. We can simply keep going back to that which is already revealed. And so then we can abound in thanksgiving. (coughs) Right there at the end of verse 7, it says, abounding in thanksgiving. This gratitude itself tells us that we have been given all that we need. You thank after you've received the gift, right? Why would we have gratitude if we were still waiting for what we were to be given? This gratitude itself tells us that we have been given all that we need. Continuing to search for that which has already been revealed will leave us discontented, frustrated, and maybe even hopeless. But focusing on the revealed mystery of Christ, that will leave us with nothing but thanksgiving and contentment, joy, and hope. Friends, I know I personally need your help as the church in keeping my focus on Christ and the gospel. Do you need one another's help in this? Do you need help being focused on Christ and the gospel? Well, let's make this our purpose and culture in this church, that everything is pointed back to Christ. So let's commit to being a church that stands firmly in and on the gospel of Jesus as Lord and nothing else. And let's give thanks to God for revealing this mystery with such clarity and such power, for it is all we need. And we will do so now through song and by going to the Lord's table. But let's first declare the truth of the gospel that's been so clearly revealed to us. Let's speak together the creed that has defined the church since the beginning, the Apostles' Creed. Would you stand with me? And let's do that now, and then we'll pray. Go ahead and say it with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. 
The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for your word. We, we are very often like puppies who follow the first squirrel that pops into view, easily being focused on something other than what you have given us and revealed to us so clearly. Forgive us, Lord, when we become so entranced by the novel and by the new, as opposed to looking at the eternal, the one who has always existed and will always exist, in whom there is no shadow of turning, no change. Lord, help us to be content in you. Help our fleshly hearts that yearn for the novel to be done away with so that we can stand firmly founded in you and in your revealed truth. Thank you for Paul's words to Colossae. We need to hear them just as much today. Help us to not be deluded or deceived by plausible arguments that surround us and whirl around us more so than in any previous generation. But help us to look to your word as the source of all truth and all wisdom. Thank you for this reminder today, Lord. I pray that it would affect our church, the heart and culture of our church, and the heart and culture of every home in this church. Let us be a people that look to you and focus upon you alone, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.